We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hi everybody, welcome to Novel Feelings, where two psychologists take a deep dive into your favourite books. I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. And today we are back for another wonderful author interview. Today we are here to talk with Anne Bust. Um, if you don't know who Anne is, let me tell you a little bit about her. So uh, Professor Anne Bust is the Chair of Women's Mental Health at the University of Melbourne, based at Austin Health and has over 30 years of clinical and research experience in perinatal psychiatry, including being director of mother-baby units for much of this time. She continues to work with protective services and the legal system in cases of abuse, kidnapping, infanticide, and murder. She teaches, supervises a perinatal outreach service and provides one-off second opinions for management of perinatal disorders and opinions for the court on these matters that no longer takes on new patients. Anne's bibliography includes the Natalie King series, a standalone psychological thriller titled The Long Shadow, and two books co-written with her husband, Graham Simsian, who we actually interviewed on the podcast last year. So if you haven't checked out that episode, please do. And Anne's latest book is Lockward, the fourth installment in the Natalie King series. So here's a little bit of a summary of Lockward. Natalie King may be a psychiatrist but that doesn't mean she can persuade her baby to go to sleep. Sienna wants to party through the night, and lack of sleep is a major trigger for Natalie's bipolar disorder. Sleep school at Southside Private Psych Unit, however, turns out to have its own hazards. It's bad enough that Natalie doesn't really want to be there, that she wants to keep her professional status quiet, and that she's seen enough group therapy to be quite sure it's not her thing. But then someone arrives who knows Natalie very well indeed, and not in a good way. Luckily, she's out of Southside by the time the murder happens. Unluckily, she knows everyone who's involved, including the cops. They think they have an open and shut case. Natalie's pretty sure they've locked the door on the wrong person. Yeah, so this is actually the fourth book in the Natalie King series as well, which started with Medea's Curse, which was released a few years ago. And can I just say, I would really love to get a copy of Anne's CV because it is <laughs> Amazing. extremely impressive. <laughs> yeah. Her writing CV is so impressive, but also her CV as a psychiatrist um, and all the work that she's been doing in this field too. Yeah. Uh, it makes me feel like a baby mental health professional when I talk to people <laughs> like her. I know we we are baby mental health professionals. I feel, <laughs> but like this is such goals as well. Like oh, yes. I don't know if we've ever talked on the mic about us, you know, our writerly aspirations. <laughs> but you know, if I could get the work life balance to actually write and have the discipline to write regularly, maybe I could aim for something close to Anne's career. <laughs> Oh, one day, right? Yeah. <laughs> my my vague life life plan at the moment is finish PhD, then worry about fiction writing because um, I would love to get back into it. It's been such a long time since I wrote anything for creative purposes. Mm. But uh, one day <laughs> I'm going to get back to it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, today we are talking about topics such as personality disorders, perinatal mental health issues, murder, and other 
psychiatric diagnosis, I would say. Yeah, as well as refugee uh, mental health. So, of course, keep all of that in mind as you listen to this episode. And just briefly before we get started on the interview, our usual disclaimers. So, we are trained psychologists, but this podcast should not be taken as direct therapeutic advice. As always, please consult a professional for more specific and tailored advice. We have split this interview into spoilers versus non-spoilers, and we will flag when the spoilers are coming up, starting with non-spoilers as usual. And like all of our interviews, this has been edited slightly for length. Let's get started with our interview. And thank you so much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to this conversation and to learn more about Locked Ward and your writing more broadly. How are you this evening? Very well, thank you, and thank you for the invitation to join you. Wonderful. First of all, uh, we know you do a lot from (laughs) biography. It sounds like you have got a lot on your plate. Um, As a psychiatrist, you're Professor of Women's Mental Health at Melbourne University, supervising, working within the legal system. How do you balance all of this with writing as well? Well, by the time you get to my age, you get to be able to do it when you want. So I'm part-time um, and you know, sometimes the, the clinical or the university stuff sort of bleeds into my writing time. But uh, in general, I, I've got fairly clear days which are writing other days and, and days that are for my clinical work. And that's really nice. Sound like you have a good work-life balance by now. Yeah, look, it hasn't been always the case, I assure you. (laughs) It was a good 10 years where I was working 12-hour days and that's when I I took a year off. Well, when I say a year off, it was six months sabbatical and six months long service leave. And on the sabbatical, I was working um, with someone even more workaholic than me. And at the end of the six months with her, I was pretty exhausted, had six months long service leave and went walking on the Camino de Santiago and just Mm -hmm. decided that life was too short to do that sort of hours um, and I needed a better balance. So I came back and essentially went down to part-time from that moment. Can I ask, I know it might be difficult to quantify, but how do you split your weeks? Do you have certain days that are dedicated to one craft and another craft? Um, Look, I don't write all the time because it depends where I am with a book or Mm. books. Tuesdays at the moment is my clinical day um, and Thursdays is sort of my second clinical day and and the teaching and that tends to go into that. But because of the, the, the marvels of Zoom and Teams meetings, there is the odd meeting and thing that comes on the other days. Uh, In general, we try and have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday um, away in the place where we don't have a telephone or a television, where writing is much easier. (laughs) That's great. I imagine it helps having having a partner who writes as well so that you can keep each other accountable in that sense. (laughs) Yeah, look, uh, probably mostly the, the how it helps is in the planning process because we're both planners um, and we've written books together as well, so that helps. But even for my crime books, he very much helps with the structure of the – well, not, not so much, with the ideas, making sense of it. He's good on structure, um, good to run things past, um, and that's, yeah, really good to have. Yeah, wonderful. Speaking of balance – part of being an author is doing interviews and promotional material like this, I suppose. Do you find that doing that 
as an author has had any impact on your professional life as a psychiatrist at all? Um, no, look, the only time I ever got into troubles with the podcast was when I had my professional hat on um, and the podcaster was actually falsely representing themselves. Um, I think always as a professional, I have to keep in as in a professional psychiatrist, have to keep in mind that hat and that my patients may see me and it's in a different context and to make sure it's not too discordant uh, that, yes, obviously people are complex and have different aspects and pretty much all my patients know I write and they may or may not read me, but uh, they they need to be able to make sense of that and they, they don't... I think it's not healthy for a podcast to co- or, or anything else that I say or in the paper or whatever um, to be at odds with that. Quite aside from my professional organisation would have big issues if I wasn't still kind of keeping that overarching ethical kind of limits in, in mind. We do want to ask a little bit about the Natalie King series. Uh, so Natalie King's work and some of the cases she deals with are, we believe, at least partly inspired by your work and your expertise. Have you found that people assume her cases or the characters she encounters are directly inspired by your cases or clients? Uh, look, look, in general, um mainly it comes out that they, people look, I know, like other professionals say, oh, character X must be based on character Y, the, the real person Y, and almost invariably they get it wrong if it was inspired by someone. It's not the person <laughs> they've told me it was. Fascinating. Um, yeah. and, and the issue with any of the – look, there's a limited number of diagnoses and there's a, a – Broadly, I mean, I think it's limitless in their broader context of stories, but the actual diagnoses, I mean, everyone with borderline personality disorder has some common traits. So in theory, you know, every person I've ever seen with that diagnosis might see them in one of the characters in Medea's Curse, for instance. Um, But it's not any of them. Um, But certainly my experience in managing people with borderline personality or psychosis or whatever the disorder is goes into every character with that and bits of everything and then a a third of it's completely made up um, and a third of it's probably got a bit of me because whatever the character is, there's always something you can relate to and that's what we we need to do as readers even the bad guys sometimes. Elisa and I spoke about this and we both really liked the disclaimer that you put on uh, in front of Medea's curse. Was that always something that you had in mind or was that something put in there or suggested by the, the editors, anything like that? Yeah, no, it was always put in, in um, sort of from what I felt was, was needed. Um, I mean, a lot because... <laughs> Of the bat, because Medea's curse was about infanticide, and mm. a lot of people with postnatal depression and anxiety are terrified about the stigma of not just the illness, but of being um, judged as being a bad mother, and with that comes fear of removal of child and mm. um, the misunderstanding of that association. Because almost all mothers with postnatal depression are, you know trying to be the best mum they can, absolutely can be uh, and, and usually doing more than a good enough job. It's just it's a hard gig in there trying to be do it perfectly and there's no such thing. Uh, and the, the whole thing with infanticide is those sort of grabbing lines, headlines in newspapers that 
I'm, I'm hoping it happens a little less now, but it's still kind of <gasps> that shock kind of mm. journalism. Mm. And it's kind of, I think, really important to sort of humanise and, and, and put things into context but not to, you know, but to also separate out that that is not, you know, postnatal depression does not equal infanticide. The only connection is both have a baby involved. <laughs> That's really um, pretty much the only connection. Yeah, so quite important to be, um, I suppose, at the start of that first book, maybe just orienting some of the readers yeah. to to make it clear that this was your perspective and yeah. you understand that this is not the case for everybody. And this leads quite nicely into our next question, which is about stigma. Um, so throughout the Natalie King series, there is a lot of depiction of psychiatric and mental health issues. Um, Natalie herself, of course, living with bipolar disorder, working with clients who have a range of complex mental health issues that um, are quite stigmatised in society. So what are some of your considerations when it comes to portraying these diagnoses, particularly when we're talking about writing in a, a crime or mystery genre? Well, first of all, they're not just a diagnosis. It's got to be that that big picture of this is a person and a diagnosis is only part of them. Now, occasionally that's considered differently. Um, I think that there's a, a lot of, not that I have any characters yet, not in anything published that have autism, but there is, is a, a group in the autistic world that say, I am autistic versus I would always say someone who has schizophrenia. <laughs> so, so whether it's an identity or not is sort of, you know, an issue to be considered. Mm. But in general, even you know, if someone is autistic, there is still They've got issues that are unique to them and their particular life that um, makes them who they are. And, and I want that three-dimensional um, kind of aspects as much as possible and to try and humanise people and make them in some way relatable and, and not scary and not, not the other that we, we all have aspects where we get depressed and anxious and you, know, you don't have to make them likeable but relatable or want to be with them or, or at least just open to some of the experiences they have and why they're having them. Yeah, great. And I think it's so rare, or maybe I haven't read enough in the crime genre, but I feel like a lot of the time um, characters with a diagnosis like borderline or schizophrenia often get cast in that sort of monstrous villainy type mm. character. So it's really nice to read your books and see that there's complexity to these characters. Occasionally there's sort of a character that you don't have sort of enough time on the page to develop well. Um, that's usually the bad guy. But even then, <laughs> in my head and as much as I can put on, on the page, there are, are reasons and explanations for how they came to be, where they got to. Mm. It's interesting since starting this podcast, I've become more attuned to portrayals of, of mental health in crime in, and mystery, mm. <laughs> you know, something that I never really thought about that much before. But it's fascinating once you're attuned to it, just how much you pick up on when a writer is, you know, either using a diagnosis in a very superficial way or as an explanation for someone's behaviour mm. without considering them as a whole person or thinking about um, people who are living with that diagnosis yeah. or those symptoms who are not in going to be involved in crime in any capacity. So yeah. it's an interesting balance, I think, especially when you're writing in this genre. 
<laughs> I suppose on the flip side of that, it can also be very easy to find portrayals of unethical mental health professionals. So mm. I think Elisa and I have made the joke that, you know, we don't sleep with our patients or our clients you know, um, yeah. and we don't stalk people or anything like that. I, I think particularly it jumps to mind, well, in books as well, but in movies and I absolutely, or movies or series, I absolutely loved in treatment. Um, I just thought it was brilliantly done. But when he went to Melissa George's home in, I think it was season one, I am screaming at the television set, (laughs) don't do it, you idiot. (laughs) I stopped watching In Treatment after that because I was just so mad at the way the story had gone. Yeah, I kept with it, but I I didn't ever really forgive him for that or forgive the screenwriters for doing that. Yeah, Yeah. I guess it is the most traumatic thing to make make him do, but for a series that does do such a good job for the most part of portraying that relationship and seeing oh yes anyway we're not talking about in treatment I could rant about it more (laughs) um so yes certainly with Natalie I mean I gave her a mental health issue which she borders on to varying times uh where this might impact on her capacities Mm. and look I made it as real as I possibly could I know a number of lawyers who have got bipolar disorder and who have mm-hmm. certainly created havoc in court um, when they haven't been well. So it's, it certainly happens. Um, I didn't, I decided to make it very clear that um, in her private life, she went a little overboard. Um, some of her judgments about her passion for patients might have been a little cloud her judgment, but ultimately the passion for her patients was never going to be in doubt and that never varied. So that was kind of a decision early on. The, the, the positive about and, and the negative, I guess, about a bipolar disorder is it gave a capacity for light and shade. Mm-hmm. We don't want any book to be all just grim and dark. And there's a little bit of a tendency with Rebus in the, the Scottish kind of alcohol-driven um, detectives uh, that they can mm-hmm. be uh, not not Stuart McBride. He's of such dark humour um, constantly, but um, with Ian Rankin, it can get a bit kind of dark at times. Whereas this gave, because she has, and she's, I mainly put a manic, you don't spend much time with her depressed at all. I think there's enough dark mm-hmm. stuff on the page without having her depressed. She's had a severe depressive episode in between book one and book two, when she's basically recovering from that at the beginning of book Mm. two. Um, So we never sit with her depressed. It's there as a fear. Um, But we do get bits of mania, which is kind of designed to make you giggle. Mania can be incredibly serious. And and I try to say that as well, that, you know, it's all very well, you know, when you're in the fun stage of mania, as my bipolar patients say, but when it goes beyond that, you risk your job, your relationships, um, and can do risky things that risk your life. So uh, mm. she doesn't quite get that far, but she, she borders on it. Yeah, and we've got a question in the spoilery section of this interview that might go a little bit in more details about that. But let's have a chat about the series in general. So Lock Ward is the fourth book in the Natalie King series. Uh, has your writing process changed at all throughout the course of the series? 
Um, look, it has in some ways. Um, it's got a lot easier, uh, largely because I know the characters. I mean, practice makes perfect as well. Well, not perfect, but mm-hmm. practice improves. But And I do think they've all improved. And I had um, a standalone one, The Long Shadow, in between book three and book four. So that was another practice. Um, so I, th- I think that helps. But the fact that I know the characters so well is that book one took a long time just getting the characters right and finessing them. And um, But now I know them so well, uh, it makes the writing so much easier. And I've just written a short story, hopefully for a, a short story collection that clandestine press is doing um, and it's a prequel and it was really fun going back to Natalie pre the first book um, and making her even a little wilder <laughs> and, uh, and that was quite fun yeah be interesting because she still has quite a wild streak in book one so I'm curious about yeah. Natalie in her younger days what yeah. that was like so there is an arc over the the four books um, and I think someone who didn't like uh, Medea's curse really the criticism was that she was a bit immature and my argument to that is when you come out of medical school you are um, you have had so little life experience and for her she was also grappling with what was a, a really serious illness diagnosis um, it, up there with you know diabetes and, and a chronic potentially life-threatening illness where she was going to have to take medication forever and people in their 20s do not think they need to take medication forever. Um, and it's, it's a big thing to grapple with. And she just got out of medical school and she was also grappling with things from her childhood. I always knew there was something there, but I hadn't actually firmly decided what it was until I got to book three. And that's where that came out. And I always ha- I always knew she was going to have a baby, which, of course, she has the baby at end of book three, and we see her in locked ward in the mother-baby unit sleep school um, because sleep deprivation is a real trigger for bipolar disorder. So a lot of that was in place all from the beginning, but only the broad strokes, the, the, the detail um, came as I went, and, and they kind of led into each other very nicely, really. It was the characters told me where they were going. And, yes, I planned it at the beginning of each book. I do plan, but the characters directed me. Yeah, that's lovely. It sounds like you've written in different formats now. So you've got the series and you've got the standalone book, The Long Shadow, and you've written with Graham Simpson as well. Do you have a preference about what format you like best? Probably. Well, I'm also writing another or hopefully a series with Graham set in a mental health facility, um, which is a new, a different process again because the process with two steps forward and two steps onward was we planned it together and then wrote wrote alternating chapters, which was fun. And I loved that they set on the Camino and the Via Francigena, loved the walks, riding them, and there was no one murdered, so it was a very different feel. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a bit of a crime tragic. Um, that's pretty much well not all I read but the majority of what I read so and I in many ways enjoyed this last one the most because I flipped and did what I've done in the two steps books and what I did in the long shadow which was right from first person it's what I like reading and I didn't feel I could do it to begin with because I felt because I don't have bipolar disorder I somehow had to distance myself a little bit from Natalie 
but I really feel I'm Natalie. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, a sick portion of me, I can just get into Natalie now. And because she's in my locked ward, yeah, she does have a little bit wild and I've got a little bit of a wild streak too, too with no um, diagnosis attached. <laughs> but uh, I felt I was able to manage that. I've, you know, had, had children. I didn't go to sleep school, but I certainly know what sleep deprivation feels like. I felt much more comfortable in that. And it's what I've done all my working life has been working with mums, mm-hmm. grappling with motherhood. So I felt very comfortable in this mm-hmm. space. That, I, and that was something that I of course, noticed was the flip from third person to first person. I've only, I think, read one other series before where that t- that change has happened um, mid-series. Uh, did that impact on your writing process at all or your characterisation? Um, it sounds like you were able to step in, you know, you felt mm. more confident writing in that way, but yeah. did you find that things unfolded in a different way in that writing? Um, look, only marginally. Mm. Um, I'd be interested in the series you're thinking about. The only one I could think of and find was, in fact, very famous, Lee Child. Lee Child's ah. Jack Reacher books, he does it in a couple, he, uh, two or three of them. Yeah. Um, he, he drops over mostly as third person, um, but uh, he, he does do a, a few from first person, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Now, this was a, a fantasy series called right. um, A Court of Thorns and Roses. It has the first three books, then a sort of transitionary novella, and then the latter books, which are from different characters' perspectives, right. um, switched to third person and it started in first. So it's the opposite way around. It started in first and went to third. Well, I've also thought about doing one from Damien's point of view because it's much easier mm. to write a cop point of view novel um and i've got sort of damien fully formed there so that's still a a possibility haven't given away that idea (laughs) that That would be be interesting for sure yeah (laughs) it would be interesting to see natalie from his perspective yes Yes. (laughs) (laughs) might not look pretty (laughs) all right well um before we jump into a few more spoiler questions something we ask all of our interviewees um do you have any book or author recommendations for our listeners oh this is always so hard because i I read (laughs) so much um so yeah look look a few i mean i just loved jacqueline bublitz's before you know my name um or before you knew my name just think it's so novel and, and beautifully written but sort of a shout out to a local author who does a great podcast, true crime podcast, Vicky Petratus. Um, The Unbelieved is her first fiction book. She's written nonfiction true crime, but The Unbelieved is a lot of fun. Um, And there's a couple I've read recently set in South Australia, which is kind of, I mean, Gary Dishes are fabulous, of course, and uh, they're South Australia, um, but these are more sort of popular psychological thriller types. So the the Summer Party, Rebecca Heath was kind of one. It was nice sort of reading about South Australia for a change. But there are now so many authors with crime books in, in Australia. It's, it's lovely reading about our local, you know, we don't have to go very far. I don't read a lot in this genre but would love to, so... I will add those to my TBR. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. All right. So we might ask a few more spoilery questions about Locked Ward. So listeners, if you haven't caught up with the Natalie King series, now is the time to go off and read the latest book and then come back to the second half of this episode. 
This is the Novel Universe with your hostesses, Dawn and Ashley. We rate and review the newest and most buzzworthy books. We are true book club ladies that don't always agree, but we do enjoy a good book discussion. You can find the Novel Universe on Apple, Spotify, and Google, where we post new episodes twice a month. I'm Dawn, the criticizer of books. And I'm Ashley, the fantasy architect. So grab your favorite beverage and join our universe. your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records. So, first of all, Anne, um, what inspired the central mystery in Lockboard? And, of course, we're in the second half, so you're welcome to talk about um, what actually does happen, but (laughs) what inspired the mystery? Well, I always knew I wanted to do one set in a mother baby unit because that's where I've been working for 35 years. And as soon as I sort of had this award, you've got a very limited number of characters and virtually no men, I mean, with apart from the partners. So limited characters and it was a ward and then we we have these zip cards to get in and out um i'm thinking well it's really a locked room isn't it why not do a locked room mystery i mean everyone somewhere along the line crime writing wants to do a locked room locked ward mystery a locked ward for me locked room mystery (laughs) so that's kind of what inspired it uh to sort of go a little bit bit back to Agatha Christie, complete with the, the, the picture of the ward, which I redesigned. It's, it's not any mother baby unit I ever worked in, but uh, kind of inspired by some I have. And and then it became much more than the other three, a, much more crime, much more Agatha Christie-ish than, than the others. And it was kind of fun then to play around with the characters to who was in it uh, and give them all sort of possible motives um, and and possible not not just why but but that they could actually do it that it was kind of a, a possible realms of possibility um, mm. that they could have done it I will say that I was guessing right until the end so there were <laughs> there were no lack of motives going on in this story about yeah. who did it who done it I should say yeah and you know look the reality is as I say in the beginning of this book this would never happen on a mother baby unit (laughs) (laughs) but on the other hand as I do say is mother baby units are geared up for the safety of the baby um so the video cameras and all sorts of things looking at baby safety um but we don't actually ever think that there's going to be a murder because you know Murder's pretty uncommon. <laughs> so um, it's, you know, the, the chances of having a mother baby unit are very rare. So you've got to get over that hurdle to make this a believable story. But once you've got over that, everything is kind of made as, as believable as I can. Yeah, I think we know what genre we're in. <laughs> so I think we, uh, we've come in with appropriate expectations, hopefully. Um, but I do, I have to say, I like the map because I think. Having read a lot of fantasy, that's where I normally see a map in a book. So I like that there's one here as well, just to keep up with the mystery. Yep. One of the main themes of this book is the treatment of refugees who come to Australia and how that can be really politicized. Even Joanna, Natalie's 
superior, I think, in this book.、Yeah. Um, she has the best of intentions, but she also uses Jamila's case to an extent to further her own case,、uh, her own、mm-hmm. cause. How did you approach writing this aspect of the storyline? Well, look, it was very much inspired by a real case, but it wasn't my case. I was actually referred it, but at the end, I was going to be overseas, so I didn't end up、mm. ever seeing her. So this is one that's well pub- publicised,、um, and she was given twenty、um, year sentence、um, that she's still currently serving for, for driving her car into a dam. And I was, I mean, I just. So what I know about it is pretty much what anyone who can Google knows about it.、Um, but I guess with my background, understanding of the community, I see a lot of Somali and Sudanese refugees. I've had a number from Nauru and Manus,、um, whose trauma of then having to send them back is just devastating to the treating team、um, because we're so powerless. So it's it's something close to my heart. On the other hand, I'm going to get howled down for saying I have sympathy for the, the both sides, but governments have a tough, tough gig、um, as to, to even if they're well intentioned and trying to balance things, and whether they really believe that they're trying to stop the boats to stop the drownings or not,、um, that is at least part of it.、Um, and there's all sorts of reasons that the boat kind of way of getting here is a really bad idea. And it's complex,、um, and people have very different views. So I wanted to have a little bit of a sense of the complexity of this, and not just doing kind of this is all wrong, it's bad, it's horrible,、um, even though it is bad and horrible. And if you're looking at it from the the humanistic point of view, absolutely. But there are some complexities about this. I did want it to have an uplifting. Endings. <laughs> Spoiler there. <laughs> that which may or may not have worked in real life, but、um, I th- think there was a possibility of a, a, a resolution there that was was better than what tends to happen in real life currently in Australia.、Mm. Was there anything in particular that you would like readers to take away from that aspect of the story? Certainly, the refugees are not dangerous. That <laughs>、um, they're they're very very much like us. And I guess one of the perhaps the most important thing、um, is how because because they do get reported in when there is something like happened to that poor Sudanese woman that they didn't seem to be behaving the way we expect they should behave. Who would you know do that? I would never do that in those some circumstances. Well, it's very much you know walk a mile in my moccasins before you you walk a month of moons or whatever the saying is, because my understand that the sort of things that I mean I didn't put it in for Jamila, but the sort of things that these women are grappling with are the sort of trauma she talks about. Often, which is so bad, they can't talk about it,、mm-hmm. and they, if they do talk about it or don't talk about it, they look like they're not reactive. They don't look devastated necessarily. They're not in hysterical tears necessarily, because they've had to learn to shut it down.、Um, you know, I, I had one patient's husband who, after I was trying to give them the. You know, you've got to understand. Your wife was pretty traumatized by watching someone be hacked to death next to her, and his reaction with a laugh was, "Oh, if you think that was bad, wait till you hear what happened to my family." And he wasn't being unsympathetic. It was just 
how they're, you know, when you've lived this experience, how you have to learn to cope. So uh, the more we understand that, I think, you know, the better it is. Um, and the other thing is, is understanding, you know, what would you do for your child? Yeah, and I think the answer might be a, a lot more different things than if you were in those circumstances than we allow credit for and, and sympathy and empathy for. Yeah, we. I think that's a common theme through many of the women who are in the locked ward, um, seeing the lengths that they go to to protect their children, whether or not there's a real threat. Um, or not, yeah. Or not. <laughs> yeah. On a, a bit of a lighter note, we really liked the relationship between Madison and Natalie in the story. You know, we need those moments of, I guess, more comic relief yeah. in, with some of the dark <laughs> yes. themes that are going on. And Madison sort of functions as the, the Watson to Natalie's homes in this story. Um, why, why did you choose her to fulfil that role here? Um, she chose herself. <laughs> it's, you know, it's again what I'd set up without ever thinking, planning this book in advance beyond it was going to be in a mother-baby unit. In the last book, I made Madison, it just like uh, Natalie was there telling her parents that she was pregnant and Madison, Matt, it, just, it just happened. Madison burst into tears. This was meant to be my moment. <laughs> kind of. So immediately we've got a sister, you know, a rival sister that they're kind of very different um, and they've had a, you know, a childhood where they were very antagonistic to each other. Um, and this is part of showing Natalie's growth and maturity and, and Madison's as well um, in developing this relationship. I've got three younger sisters who are a lot younger than me, um, and whilst none of them are anything like Madison, there has certainly been you know, growth in our relationships uh, over over time and over having babies and being able to kind of share those experiences um, that I was able to tap into. Uh, and, yeah, my first reader was my daughter and she said the same as you, she just loved Madison, <laughs> more of Madison. Yeah, she's a nice, um, what's the word? balance to Natalie I think yeah. in that sense yeah. yeah and I love how she put together the mother's group such an interesting mother's group yeah. uh, yep. <laughs> drawing out the the ward layout with cutlery and so on yes. ingenious yeah. yes uh, is she likely to make an appearance in the future books Ah, uh, look, I'm not sure because I'm putting Natalie aside at mm. least for a little while, apart from the short story, prequel that's hopefully going to come out. I would expect she probably will. And even though Natalie looks like she's leaving Melbourne, uh, my guess is if I write another Natalie, she, for varying complicated reasons, which I haven't decided yet, um, mm. she won't have left Melbourne. <laughs> She'll still be here at least for another book. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I even know where she's moving to because she, of course, has problems with her apartment after the, what I did to her. I keep doing things to her um, <laughs> oh, the, the, and her parrot. Oh, poor Bob. Yeah. <laughs> the, the prequel shows us how she gets Bob as well. Oh. So it's all, also her first meeting with Bob, the parrot. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, <laughs> so when Natalie and Sienna attend the sleep school at Southside, Natalie asked for her last name to be kept out of pretty much everything except for the bills because she doesn't want gossip to spread in the health professional circles. And I think throughout the books, there are also hints that if her diagnosis of bipolar disorder is more known among her colleagues, that will be to her disadvantage in her career. Can you talk a bit about the stigma around mental health disorders or diagnosis among 
health professionals? Look, I'd love to say it didn't exist, um, and that Natalie, mm. but I wanted to write it authentically, and I think that's how authentically it really would be. There would be quite, and I've certainly had friends that have um, been admitted in the, the mother baby unit um, who immediately rush to say, "Oh no, I'm just here for sleep school," but you know they're under a psychiatrist, and you just smile, <laughs> so mm. whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's you know totally understood. This is incredibly common anxiety and depression postnatally. Bipolar, I think within the psych profession, I would hope that there would be better understanding that, you know, it can be well managed. And, you know, by the end of this book, she's really managing it better. Um, Certainly she was in the first book. She's not taking risks in the same way she was. and, And Sienna, her baby, is a very big motivation for this. But look, there's no doubt that the stigma of mental illness is huge. And when we, this was a number of years ago, but I suspect it hasn't changed, did a survey of women. They said, you know, that the stigma of mental illness was bad, but we think it will also be judged as bad mothers and we don't want that. Uh, so the, the, the double whammy that happens. Um, but, you know, mental illness is incredibly common. Um, we all know people with mental illness and... Uh, it's being more open to talking about that and understanding that mental illness doesn't equal violence. It doesn't equal being crazy all the time or making poor judgments all the time or being sad all the time. It's episodic um, generally. It's, you know, we all have bad times and bad periods and people with mental illness are just like that, just as people with lupus, um, People with cancer um, can have remissions and then relapses. It's the same in with mental illnesses. There are bad periods and not so bad periods. And I think one thing that really struck me is how uh, it, it's pretty rare throughout the book for Natalie's mental illness to be affecting her clinical judgment as well. Like there are some instances, I suppose, where you know there are, it is questionable, but for the most part, she is highly competent at what she yeah. does she is incredibly caring and incredibly switched on and observant mm-hmm. yeah so I don't have a question there yeah. just an observation yeah and look I think it is true to say that it, of the caring and the um the, the general competency that that is is true of people even when they're unwell if they're still able to get to work they can crawl to work and still do that and then I guess it's the having the ability to write, well, no, I'm not well. I've now got to pull myself out and that judgment call, um, which is not always easy to do in the early phase of bipolar when you're still learning to manage it. But uh, I think later becomes much easier to do once you're on top of it. Of course. And if you wanted to chat about that new book coming up later in the year, feel free. Yeah, look, it, it's probably now going to be next year. Um, okay. The reason being we're about to sign for a TV series. And oh, <laughs> do you have news to share? Well, well, it's not signed yet. But oh. we're, we're very optimistic that, uh, and they're very keen. Um, now, always with these things, you've got to get the funding and the casting mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. of this. But um the new book was written with a TV series in mind. So it's written as a novel of 13 episodes um, and it's written with my husband. It's There's no crime, but it's set in a mental health facility with the idea of being, I don't know, that, that 
I guess like house but in a mental health facility, mm. but there's no house character per se. Mm. It's, it's as authentic and raw as we can make it as to sort of what it's really like at the coalface and it follows four first-year psychiatry registrars um, in at the interface um, and we follow three patients throughout the, the 13 episodes but otherwise there's a patient per episode and it's like a patient of the week so that'd be a patient each week you'd mm. get that that has an arc that finishes um, and but you've still got the background stuff happening and there's an arc with our characters and what's happening with them as well so we may delay it um, so that we can have more movie news or TV series news. But uh, we're, we're also considering, uh, it's called Out of the Blue. I think we're pretty confident that that will be the name of it and set in the Blue Sky Mental Health Service, which is a fictional mental health series pretty much obviously in Melbourne, but I'm not sure that we ever say Melbourne. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's clearly Australia um, and clearly the Australian mental health system. And... Very much looking at trying to, we'd like to do a book tour and go around maybe partnering with, well, with other authors who have written from first from their personal experiences um, at, at presentations as well as perhaps, you know, uh, mental health foundation and suicide prevention groups and to encourage this real discussion about mental illness and hoping to destigmatize it. I mean, we're not making it, you know, sugarcoating it. There's some pretty dr- dramatic scenes. There is risks of escalating violence on occasion. So it's about understanding those complexities and trying to get in early and prevent some of this. And all my perinatal work is about getting in very early and, and helping support families to be the best parents they can be so those babies are nurtured and provided with resilience for later problems. That yeah. sounds amazing and you know, congratulations yeah. on, on this. I'm really yeah. looking forward yeah. to reading and or watching yeah. the series. Okay, well, be happy to both come back and do a talk with you with that book sometime. Please do. Oh, that would yes. be amazing. That would be Fantastic. Amazing. Oh. I've also been thinking that we've got enough alumni or people associated with the the podcast and our blog now that we could almost get together a panel at some point of um, (laughs) mental health professionals who write. So I don't know what that would look like, maybe a special episode one day, but uh, I think, Anne, you'd be a great panellist if that were to be the case. (laughs) Very happy to be involved. Wonderful. Thank you. But I think that wraps up our interview. Thank you so much, Anne. I think I'm now sitting in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see me. <laughs> yeah. I'm still here. Yeah. Curse these uh, early, early night times that we've got this time of year. Um, yeah. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Now we've wrapped up our interview with Anne. We'll just quickly mention what's going up on our website with the show notes. Uh, so first of all, we will link to Anne's website, which is annebust.com, A-N-N-E-B-U-I-S-T.com. And we'll also provide the links to the books and authors who Anne recommended. And that wraps us up for today. Thank you very much to Anne for joining us for such a wonderful discussion. Please remember to subscribe and follow us to keep up to date with us and to know when our new episodes are posted. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find detailed show notes on our website, novelfeelings.com. 
follow us on Instagram or Twitter via at novel underscore feelings or join in on our reading challenge on the story graph. You can also find my bookstagram at paved with books with an extra s. I don't know if anyone's actually interested in these updates, <laughs> but uh, my your future my... mother-in-law is <laughs> yes. <laughs> but my books are organized on the shelves, so there will be photos coming up. <laughs> the bookstagram is going to be alive again very soon. <laughs> yes, soon, soon. Very exciting. <laughs> All right, thank you so much to everybody for listening. Take care. Bye.